0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
1: I hate to disappoint Chris, who was so moved, obviously, by a a patient remembering him, that everybody in this room can remember their first dentist, Chris. (laughs) But uh, not, uh, not all of us were blessed with dentists uh, when we were little boys who said, do you see Tristan da <laughs> <laughs> So I am thinking that next year on the open day there should be a bouncy castle there and a very large notice that says, free dentistry while you wait. So that, should, um, that may not draw in any of your students but it might draw in others. Well, we're beginning a new series uh, this evening in the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll find the Bible reading is on page 968 of the Church Bible. I'm going to begin to read um, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, and uh, I think I'll read verse 17 and then from verse 23 and through to... Verse six of chapter five. Uh, Matthew three: Jesus is baptized. Matthew four: Jesus is tempted. Um, unlike us, uh, Jesus is led by the Spirit into temptation. Uh, so, there's a very different reality from the reality we experience temptation comes to us. We don't need to look for it, Uh, but Jesus marches into temptation, and that's quite a significant thing in the flow of the narrative. And then he begins to preach, and chapter 4 verse 17 tells us in summary form about that preaching from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or we might put that the other way around. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. And Jesus, verse 23, went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Uh, The beginning of Jesus' ministry was very like um, the run-up to the referendum, Um, word of mouth. Discussion in the street. Have you heard what Jesus is doing? And the news spread all over Syria. It's re- it's, it is really amazing. Huge crowds coming. And then when Jesus saw the crowds, I think we should notice how Matthew describes it. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I think it's always good when we begin a new series anywhere in uh, the church life that we ask ourselves, uh, why are we doing this? Um, Why when we have this big Bible, two Testaments, 66 books, and this long 28-chapter gospel, why are we going to study three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, There are several answers to that. Actually, the first part of the answer is the same in every series. It is because this is part of God's Word, and as you remember, Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture and every part of it is useful for us for four things. For teaching us so that our minds are clarified about the gospel, for reproving us so that our consciences are touched by the gospel for correcting us, that is, transforming us, taking us from being wrong and mixed up to being transformed and reintegrated and recalibrated, and also the Word of God equips us to serve Him in in the church and in the world, in our homes and the places where we live and work and where we study and serve. And this little section of Matthew's gospel is certainly no exception. It is certainly a passage that has proven itself over the centuries to be hugely profitable for the people of God. We are not going to engage in a long series. We, God willing, will be finished by uh, Christmas time. My uh, concern is not that we focus our attention, not every jot and tittle in the Sermon on the Mount, but that, that somehow or another we get the structure of our Savior's teaching, because this is a very clearly structured sermon. This actually may be the most, I don't mean this sermon, I mean this Sermon on the Mount, may be the most clearly structured, the most logically connected sermon that has ever been preached. And so, it's hugely helpful to us to enable us to think through how the gospel works in the Christian life in a coherent fashion that will give stability to our lives, and it will also give coherence to our Christian witness. And of course, that's not an insignificant thing because uh, there is another reason for studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's always good to focus on Jesus, isn't it? All Scripture focuses ultimately on Jesus, but there are some passages that actually come to us from Jesus. So, this is Jesus speaking about Jesus to people who belong to Jesus. So, in a way, we couldn't get any more Jesus than that at the same time, one of the things that makes it important for us, all of us younger and older Christians, to be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount is because it's a real connection to, uh, still in Scotland, probably large numbers of the population. This is the passage in the New Testament that everybody is supposed to love. Don't like that. Paul All that business about who Jesus is, that's a bit difficult to say. But I absolutely love the Sermon on the Mount, judge not, do to others, salt of the earth. And uh, one of the reasons it's important to know the Sermon on the Mount is because it enables you to think, although not necessarily to say, saying comes later, it enables you to think this person has actually never read the Sermon on the Mount. This person has no idea whatsoever about what the Sermon on the Mount contains. It isn't about the British way of life. It is about the power of the gospel that transforms life. And so, there are extraordinary things here. Like, when you are persecuted for the sake of Jesus, you are unusually blessed. There are nine Beatitudes here. Actually, there's kind of eight and a half Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. What's significant about number eight and number nine is that number nine is just really saying, can you take that in? I have just said to you, you will be blessed when you are persecuted and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Now, just in case you missed the point, let me repeat myself immediately to you. That isn't the Sermon on the Mount most people love. The Sermon on the Mount most people love uh, doesn't teach them about a Jesus who says, there'll be many who will come before me on the last day. And I will say to them, get out of my sight. I never knew you. Not everyone knows that the Sermon on the Mount ends with this cataclysm of the great decision that needs to be made. Because there are, right through Scripture, only two ways. Actually, right from the very beginning of the Bible, there are only two ways to go. One leads to eternal life. The other leads to eternal disaster. That is the significance and the power of the Sermon on the Mount. And because there is still that latent connectedness, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to be able to say to people, um, when did you last read the Sermon on the Mount with somebody? Would you like to read the Sermon on the Mount with me? And uh, we will discover some very remarkable things. Now, this evening I just want to introduce where the Sermon on the Mount belongs in the gospel. Clearly, you can see this in the first of the Beatitudes and the eighth of the Beatitudes. You can see it in the lead up to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is about the heavenly rain appearing on the earth and it's about the lifestyle that that produces. In chapter 5, as we have it, Jesus is relating that lifestyle to the lifestyle of God's people in the old covenant and the way in which that lifestyle was mangled. In chapter 6, he's introducing something that is gloriously fresh, And that is that this is a lifestyle that is lived in the presence of the Heavenly Father. That was a beautifully fresh revelation to so many of these people. And then in chapter 7, he is essentially saying, and this is a lifestyle in which those who belong to God's kingdom live the whole of their lives before God's face and therefore always asking the question, what does my father think about this? How does my father assess this? And it's this that enables the Christian to be discerning and wise, and to make the right decisions, and to live a a cutting-edge life for the glory of God. And of course, the whole of Matthew's gospel, in a sense, is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is introduced in the the opening chapter as the Son of David. And it's all being set up. If you you knew the left-hand side of your Bible and then turned over the blank page and read the first page in the right-hand side of your Bible, you would immediately make the connection. The Son of David. Then this is the This is the son who was promised to reign upon David's throne. This is the Messiah that the Lord promised would come from David's line. And immediately it's in Matthew's gospel, isn't it, that the the wise men come from the east asking, where is the king who has been born? Now, these chapters right at the beginning of the gospel set us up for understanding how Jesus is bringing in his reign. In chapter 3, he is publicly inaugurated into it. He is, he is baptized, and you remember how God says, this is my son. This is, this is the son of the second Psalm, who has been set upon God's holy hill against whom the nations will conspire together to destroy him and say, let us us break the bands of the Lord and his Messiah. But this is the king who is bringing in the kingdom. And because he has been anointed for that ministry, as he's publicly declared by his heavenly father to be the royal king, the first thing he needs to do is to deal with the one who has occupied the territory that he has come to claim. This is very connected to uh, what you may just remember we studied in the early chapters of Genesis. That when God made man in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, he made him to be his image and royal son, to be a little king, in an earthly kingdom as a kind of representative of the great king in the cosmic kingdom. And he gave him dominion. But he forfeited the dominion in Genesis chapter 3. He lost his crown. He came under judgment. The, the world that he was supposed to make fertile was the world into which he would sink. He was supposed to subdue the dust and make it fruitful, and instead he becomes part of the dust. And the great thing that Scripture emphasizes is this. God wants his kingdom back where he intended it to be. You know, if you owned a great painting, um, for all I know, you may own a great painting, but a valuable painting, and somebody stole it. And then uh, uh, P.C. Smith came around with a smile on his face and said, sir, very glad to tell you we've caught the thieves who stole your painting. You would say, well, that's very good. But what you would be asking would not be the identity of the thieves. You would want to know whether they got your painting back. Now, that's what God is interested in. The painting has been marred. The sculptor has been stolen. And he he wants it back. And so, his son comes. Remember, uh, Newman's hymn, his son comes as a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And instead of in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness, and he undoes what Adam had done. He does what Adam and Eve had failed to do. He faces down the temptations of the evil one. And uh, you remember what the uh, rather surprising temptation there is. I think it's not surprising that when Jesus was hungry, he was tempted by Satan to turn these stones, into bread. But I wonder if you've noticed that uh, in Matthew's gospel significantly, the climactic temptation is this, just bow down before me, and all of these kingdoms will be yours. Now, at first sight, my response to that is to say, oh, easy one to deal with, why would, that be? why would that be a real temptation? Why did Jesus not say, come on? Why, is that, why does that, as it were, almost grab Jesus' attention? Because that's actually what he's come to do. He's come to regain the kingdoms of this world. He's come to restore them, to bring them back to his heavenly Father. First Corinthians 15 describes exactly that. So the reason this is a real temptation to Jesus is because the devil is offering Jesus the very thing he came to get, and he can get it without the cross. But of course, he understands that if he seeks to get it without the cross, instead of gaining the kingdom that's promised. He simply repeats. He doesn't undo what Adam and Eve had done. He simply repeats what they had done. And the whole miserable situation is made even more disastrously bad. But he overcomes. And Satan sneaks away. And then you see, having defeated Satan, he's been anointed as king. He has shown that he is king by defeating the evil one on enemy-occupied territory. He is actually, it's an away game for Jesus. It's like uh, Aberdeen, as I heard on the radio yesterday, people complaining, it's so difficult to play at Celtic. Everybody's against you. And here Jesus has gone into a situation where the whole situation is against him. He's hungry. He's been there long. He is being offered the very thing he came to get. But he withstands the evil one, and uh, the evil one is forced to slink away and to wonder if there's going to be a better time when he can come back and try again. Is there a moment when Jesus is going to be even weaker and maybe he can try again and defeat him? But for the moment, for the first time really in history, he has been absolutely vanquished and overwhelmed. So what's the next thing Jesus does? Well, he does two things, doesn't he? He tells people the kingdom has come. He proclaims that the kingdom has come. Now, there is one thing you need if there is going to be a kingdom. You need a king. You can be a land. You could be the United States of America, which, at least when I last heard, was no longer a kingdom. What you need to be a kingdom... You know, if somebody comes to you and says, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of the United States, you might say, well, you may be a citizen of the kingdom of Texas, but you are certainly not a citizen of the kingdom of the United States. Well, why? Because you don't have a king. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come because the king is here. Now the kingdom may not look much in a sense, geographically, it's just been that little space where he has said in the wilderness to Satan, I'm taking it back, it's mine now. Jesus doesn't leave Satan, Satan leaves him. And now what Jesus is going to do, if I can put it this way, that just as Satan through Adam had turned the garden into the wilderness… Jesus is going to turn the wilderness into the garden. And just as Adam and Eve were supposed to take their little garden and extend it to the ends of the earth, Jesus is starting in the wilderness, and He's going to expand His garden kingdom until it reaches the ends of the earth, and He's going to do this by the power of the gospel. And because he's going to do this by the power of the gospel when he proclaims that the kingdom is come, how do, you, how do you know the kingdom's come? Have you bumped into somebody down the street who says the kingdom has come? You want to see, How do you know the kingdom has come? Prove it. And Jesus doesn't prove it by saying, I was alone in the wilderness face to face with the devil and I overcame him. So what does he do? Well, uh, he begins to restore the things that have been broken. They bring the blind to him, and he gives them sight. They bring the lame to him, and he enables them to walk the paralyzed. And he sets them free, the demon-possessed, you see. You ever wonder why it is in the whole of the Bible, and actually in the whole of human history, the most intense concentration of demon possession is the three years of Jesus' ministry. You know, go through the 39 books of the Old Testament, tell me, how many times do you read in the Old Testament of demon possession? How many times do you read in the Gospels of demon possession? And how many times do you read in the Epistles or in the Acts of the Apostles of demon possession? Relatively rarely. But it's all over the Gospels. Why is that? Now, we would be poor interpreters of Scripture if we said, because it's normal. The very reverse is the truth. In Bible history, it's not normal. So, why is it here? And the answer is, because Jesus is here. And Jesus has come. And the demons, you remember, know that their time is short because Jesus has, for the first time in history... Overcome their king and prince and lord. This is this is uh, this is D-Day. And as an evidence of that, what Jesus begins to do is he he begins to undo the effects of the fall, doesn't he? It's it's re- it's very beautiful. And he shows the compassion of God. And he gives gives little indications. This is so interesting. He gives little indications, A, of what life was originally meant to be, and B, of what life is ultimately going to be when his kingdom is fully and finally brought in. And actually, it's so important, it's actually so important for us in the times in which we are living to understand that, that these miracles Jesus does are not normal events in the history of the Bible. You know, we need to, we need to learn to live and think as Christians from, from the inside of the Bible, outside, not from the outside, inside. You know, I mean, I don't know how many people have said to me that, you know, the, the Bible is full of miracles, absolutely full of miracles. That's why there are miracles happening all, they're all over the world. I mean, there, there are always people who tell you, you know, there are all these miracles happening all over the world. The truth of the matter is the Bible isn't full of miracles. There are hardly any time periods in the Bible in which there are outbreaks of the miraculous. It's, it's astonishing. Now, we need to make an important distinction. God works supernaturally all of the time, but not everything that God does supernaturally does God describe as a miracle. And miracles, by and large, you, you know, you can go and check it up yourself. All you need to do is say, you can use the McChain calendar, begin at Genesis 1, get to Revelation 22, and you'll find that there are basically four generations in all of those years in which there are outbreaks of the miraculous. In the time of the Exodus, in the time of Elijah and Elisha, in the time of Daniel, and in the time of Jesus and the apostles. And they're all roughly a generation long. Now, if you've if you've come from a certain kind of background, that is that is such reverse thinking that it's hard to take in when somebody tells you. You know, if you've been reared all your Christian life on the notion the miraculous is normal. And so the churches where they don't have miracles aren't normal churches which incidentally is originally a Roman Catholic argument against the Protestant Reformers, you, you do need to say to them and to yourself, can you just show me this in the Bible? Because actually what I see is, as far as I can see, Isaiah, Jeremiah, didn't do any miracles. David sure was a good slingshot, and he was strong. But uh, his life story is not full of the miracles he did. They're actually very rare in the Bible. A sum total in these thousands of years of, of maybe 150 years in which there are these, these sudden outbreaks. And they all have very definite things in common. One of them almost always is that the kingdom of God is under immense attack. It's it's under threat of total destruction. And God comes to redeem and to protect his people. And another reason he does them, and this is so interesting, is because he wants to give special confirmation to those he has raised up to inaugurate a new stage of revelation. Moses, the prophets, the Lord Jesus. And actually, this is how the apostles viewed the miraculous in the life of Jesus. They confirmed his identity as the person who was bringing into the world new revelation from God. And there was this amazing outburst, demonstration of the power of God, these signs and wonders that showed the deep compassion of God, and the fact that God was doing a new thing, and especially that God was pointing to the individual who would be the mouthpiece of a new stage of divine revelation altogether. Moses and Elijah and Elisha introducing the whole day of the prophets. Daniel when the kingdom of God is about to be totally destroyed. And Jesus and the apostles. All bearers of new epochs of revelation. So there is this, there's this, powerful. You know, incidentally, I think it's worth saying in that context that, um, you know, we don't get so much of this in, in our country, but it's all over other countries. You know, if, if there are just miracles, people will come to believe. The answer to that is, tell that one to Jesus. Tell that one to the Apostle. So, as Jesus brings in the kingdom, and as God essentially says, there are all the hallmarks of my doing something new, and what is really new here is that through Jesus, I am bringing in a new creation. And it's hard to see. Remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians five fifteen: if anyone in Christ new creation, it, people in your class at college… Look at you and say, boy, she's a new creation of where you work. No, it's hard to see the new creation. And so it's almost as though Jesus is saying to those who belong to him, let me, take, let me just take you in here for a minute and I'll switch on the light just for a second. You know when you go into a room and you switch on the light, it lights up and then suddenly fuse, and everything goes dark. But you've seen something. You've seen enough to negotiate your way around. If I can put it this way, you've been standing at the edge of the room, the light has gone on, the fuse, it's gone off, but you've seen the future and you're able to make your way through. Now, that's what Jesus' miracles are. I mean, it's just very interesting, isn't it? Um, he doesn't heal everybody. He heals some. There are places he simply will not do these things. But what he's really doing here is saying, I want my people. Unbelievers will be, will be, will be starstruck by this, but that's all they'll see. They will see clever tricks. But I want my people to... In the darkened room of this world, I want my people just to have a glimpse of what it's going to be like. As they enter the kingdom, I want to see, I want to help them see what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. Um, It looks as though 15% of us, at least in this room, wear spectacles. Why don't you wear contact lenses? Because you can't be bothered standing on them in the morning, trying to put them in so you can see. and you, you re- I mean, it's a trivial thing to be long sighted or short sighted, isn't it? But, you know, when you, you reach out to the bedside cabinet and the first thing you do in the morning is stick them on so the world can see and a day is coming, you think, you know, this is, a, this is a very trivial thing, but occasionally you think one day there will be no more optometrists. Actually, one day there'll be no more dentists, <laughs> no more doctors, no more psychiatrists, no more policemen. And Jesus is just giving us a little glimpse in the, the the beautiful sympathy he shows to the needy to say to his disciples. I mean, all that some people see is that he, he did a really, that was really clever. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. But you see, disciples are meant to see something much more important. They're meant to get a glimpse of how it's going to be when there is no more curse, when there is no more sickness, when there is no more sorrow, when there is no more pain. And that's what he's doing. He's, there's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God because the king has come. One could put that another way. You know, uh, most of you are too young to remember the coronation. I mean, Elizabeth's coronation, 1953. Every child in the land was given gifts. It was, it was, it's the only time in the last 60 years that every child in the land was given gifts. So, why? Because her reign was being inaugurated. That's why. Of course, the gifts turned pear shaped. I got a mug with candy in it. I wish I'd kept it, I could have sold it on eBay for a small fortune. So, because it is not our Saviour's intention that this should continue indefinitely. Any more than it was the Lord's intention that the miracles that were done through Elijah and Elisha should continue indefinitely. They were very rare between their time and Daniel's time. He is going to do something, in a sense, more strategic than just his own miracles. He is, if I can put it this way, going to leave glimpses of the future behind in his disciples, who will be men and women and young people who will live the life of the kingdom of heaven even while they are here on earth. And that's what this sermon is really all about. And that's why it begins with these beatitudes. Um... What comes to mind in the Old Testament when I say, blessed is? Well, if you know the Old Testament, it's the second psalm, isn't it? And the first psalm, the first psalm. The psalms actually begin with these words. This is the blessed life. The blessed life is the life that's lived by the man, the woman, whose life is directed by the reign of God in the Word of God. That's the most impressive thing in all the world. That's the most different thing in all the world. And one of the things that Jesus, we'll come back to this next Sunday morning, we'll need to come back to it, or I'll keep you here till next Sunday morning. (laughs) One of the things that you see in these Beatitudes is that the blessed life, which in this instance means the happy life, the the life that you cannot help admiring is radically different from the life that most people admire. You—you're you, like me. You must have overheard people say, like Friday afternoon. What are, you, what are you doing tonight? You know, we're going out. We're going to get stoned out of our mind, and we're going to have a great time. Amazing, isn't it? that you are so stoned out of your mind before you imbibe any of the stuff that stoned you out of your mind, actually to be out of your mind already in thinking that's a great time. But that's our world, isn't it? It's as, as, as Kierkegaard said, you, you, you come into the world and, and, and God willing, one day it dawns on you that somebody has been here and they've changed all the price tags. All the price tags have been changed. And so Jesus is saying, Let me, let's begin with this. This is Christianity 101. This is Fresher's Week Christianity. The blessed life is an entirely different life from the kind of life that people outside of the kingdom seek in order to be happy. Actually, it's kind of amusing really, the, the, the word that's used here for, um, uh, for blessed is uh, Makarios. Is the, Makarios. Most of, you, most of you have no idea who Archbishop Makarios was. Uh, when you saw, do you remember Archbishop Makarios? He used to be on television almost every night. Um, I mean, he, he actually looked like the antithesis of Makarios. He was a very severe-looking individual. Makarios is Mr. Happy. Mr. What is it he's got that I don't have? Um, in, in, in the, it's Asher in the Old Testament. Leah's first son. Oh, I'm so happy. I've got a child. I'm going to call him Happy. Those of you who have read Kayon Pottock's novels, I Am Asher Lev. It's, if you're a music major, it's Felix Mendelssohn. He was so lucky to write that music, wasn't he? It is, and this is the thing, you know, we really need to believe this as Christians, that the lifestyle of the kingdom... Almost forces upon people even if they hate it with every ounce of their energy it forces upon them the recognition he's got something I don't have she's got something I don't have and whatever it is literally, it's what happened with Saul of Tarsus and Stephen I believe your very life almost Oh, and this, this, in a way, is such a, such a monumental thing to be a Christian. Because quite unwittingly, because of what the kingdom of God has done in your life, and because the king reigns in your life, your life forces people you know into a corner in which they've got to make a decision. And that decision is they can do it in a thousand different ways to avoid or destroy you. Or to join you. Because there is something about you that they don't understand. There's something about you that makes them different from them. And in a good way, different from them. Now, what is it? Well, let me just read the Beatitudes and then I'll pray. The really the really life that's worth having is the life of the person who is poor in spirit because that's the person who possesses the kingdom of heaven. The life that is to die for is the life in which the person mourns for the death of their own life. And finds the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life that is so different. I know it's life as it ought to be lived. And I maybe hate it for that reason. Is that this person. Because they're placed under the king. Has gone down so low before the king. That I can't put them down any lower. And so absolutely nothing I do and put them down. It's the meek who inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. That is to say being being reintegrated with God. That's what righteousness really is. And blessed are the merciful. That was a that was a character trait that was despised in the ancient world. And for all, there are charities all the way around. That's not the same thing as mercy, is it? That's not the same thing as having a broken heart and actually doing something about it. That's not treating those who are your enemies as though they were your friends. And blessed are the pure in heart, it, you would almost think that that was the thing most feared in the 21st century among young people and older people, to be pure in heart. And I think that's probably why the pure in heart, are, they're always slagged off, aren't they? They're, they're stick in the muds, they're extremists, they're fundamentalists, they're purists. They're, they're some kind of curse word. Why? Well, I know there are crazy horses, and there are odd fundamentalists, and there are, there are people who are religious tightwads, but this is a happy person who is pure in heart. And what does the pure in heart person do in my presence? He or she shows up the impurities of my heart. And I've either got to go to them and say, help me. I've got to find a way of avoiding or even destroying their influence. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Um, Jesus was a peacemaker, the Son of God. They hated the peace. They despised the peace. Crucified the peace. But to follow him, to be an instrument of reconciliation between our friends and God through Jesus Christ. That, says Jesus, that's one of the evidences of being a child of God. And yes, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake because And this is the great thing. This is actually what happens existentially. You're you're witnessing to Jesus Christ. You're living for Jesus Christ. And it seems as though all hell is set loose against you. And what actually is the result? Well, you do what the apostles did. You think, my goodness, little me. I thought so little of my Christian witness. And all hell is let loose against me. Why is this? It must be because I belong to the kingdom of heaven. There's something about me that so reminds them of Jesus that they've got to treat me the way they would treat Jesus. And Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, that's enough for the introduction. But just before we go, do you notice something? You notice how Jesus like these Beatitudes are? You know, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, the hymn of love, you're not just meant to say, oh, well, that's a nice hymn. And say, oh, that's an interesting way to describe Jesus and those who belong to Jesus. And that's what the Beatitudes are doing. At the end of the day, they can all, they can all be embraced into the world. this one Beatitude, which is this. Blessed is the man or woman or boy or girl or young person who is growing more and more like Jesus. Because that's what happens in the kingdom of God. So, if after all this time of introduction you want to take, just give me one thing to take away, that'll get you through the week, won't it? Everything he wants to do in your life, in all of these several beatitudes, boiled down to one beatitude. The most blessed thing in the world is to have him as your king, to be in his kingdom, and to be made more and more like him. And when that happens, then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount begins to fit into place. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is such a master teacher because he is our master. We thank you that he has not left us to our own devices to work out what the Christian life is like, but has taught us here in the Gospels. And we thank you especially, Lord, for the ways in which he inaugurated the kingdom. We look forward to the day, we long for the day when he will consummate the kingdom. And the lame will walk, and the blind will see, and the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak. Broken trees will sway with life in the wind. There will be no more crying, no more tears. But we thank you that already the the blessedness of that, the happiness, the, the desirability of that, the pleasure of that, has already come to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would, through your word, by your Spirit, in your providence, in our fellowship together, remake us more and more into the image of your Son, whom we confess we love so much. And however faultingly we follow him, we do want to be made more like him day by day. Bring it to pass, we ask in his name. Amen.
0: once again, that website address is solas Thanks for listening.